The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. So, here we all are, coming close to the end of our intensive uh, practice period, here. (laughs) Soon to be taking yourselves, taking your practice out there, uh, wherever there is for you. Which for most of you, or maybe all of you, will entail a much longer period of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that many of us come to the end of a retreat with some thoughts and some feelings that really aren't so dissimilar uh, to those that we came into retreat with. For many people, there's a feeling of excitement and readiness to go into an extended period of intensive practice. And though there is that experience, Sometimes, just before it's a time to enter in, there might be the feeling that, well, I'm just not really quite finished yet out here. I just need a few more days. I just uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe another week so that I can uh, do what needs to be done, and then I'll be ready to go in. And it seems that Some of us have similar uh, feelings, similar thoughts, when it's a time to uh, come out of an intensive practice period, an excitement and a a readiness to go out into the larger world. And yet maybe there, for some of you, might be thoughts such as, well, just a little more time, maybe a few more days, a week. Someone, I heard someone say today, oh, another month would be good. to do what needs to be done and then I'll be finished and then I'll be ready to come out and then I'll be ready to go back out there and sometimes at either end the going in and the coming out there might be some degree of reluctance some resistance maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known. Or maybe just essentially just fear of change. Fear of ending one way and entering into another way. And for some, there can be a kind of a big urgency to go into a retreat. I just can't wait. Really can't wait. So ready to go into retreat. And then, at the other end, I can hardly wait to get out of here. I want to be done. I want to go home. I want to go back to the, my regular life. So an urgency may be in, on either end. So you might really check in with yourselves 
and see if there might be some of these kinds of thoughts and feelings. Maybe some similar habituated, conditioned patterns within your mind coming up now at the end of this retreat that you may have experienced as you were preparing to come here or that you might have felt at the onset of the retreat. And of course, we may not feel any anxiety in either direction, any intensity or kind of anxious energy, entering into or coming out of retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might just feel a a clean, clear, open readiness and a happiness without any particular expectations or particular worries about moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next phase and form that life will take, whatever that might be. There's a beautiful piece that was written uh, by the American astronaut Russell Swicart uh, regarding uh, his experience uh, traveling in outer space. And I'd like to share this with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there. And they are like you, they are you, and somehow you represent them. You're here, you're up here as a sensing element. That point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The mind, the heart that doesn't see, doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious.
And as we all know, there is a change about to happen. And also, of course, various changes that occurred during this time in retreat. And so reflecting on the supports available to you as you begin to make the change out of retreat life and into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life, at least outwardly, Life appears uh, to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into life into the lar- we move into life into the larger world. We're supported with some an- understanding from our weeks of practice and how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. And how quickly and incessantly things change all around us, even in the slowed down life, retreat life, pace of life and retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness or the moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And maybe you've had a little taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we might try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration, mindfulness and kindness, not kindness towards ourself and towards others, metta, developed over these weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is we experience in the body or the mind, the heart, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In real truth, really, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then, whatever it is, changes quite quickly or simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a very deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices we make, more connection and clarity in our relationship to others, more clarity in what's important and what's appropriate, what's wholesome and really, truly respectful and kind. 
these tastes, this understanding is really a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is a change. This is a change from here to there. Life in retreat really offers very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, listen to Dhamma talks and morning reflections. You eat, you do your yogi job, sleep, and you've spoken just a little every few days during practice interviews. And within this container of simplicity, you've been encouraged and supported to develop a depth and clarity of focused attention and to mindfully pay attention to what occurs within the breath and also in the body and the mind, the heart. And you've been invited to sense, see, and know. Is the mind, is the heart opening to, connecting with, receiving the breath or various other occurrences in this body-mind continuum? Or is the attention spaced out or disconnected, separated, or caught, or stuck in some physical phenomena or some thought form. With all of this practice and all of this learning, bringing us closer and closer to sensing, seeing, and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and care about all of these cycles within our mind, body, and heart. This sensing, this seeing, and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Really, we're all so similar. No matter who we are, no matter where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our race, our color, really we're just all variations on themes. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. sila or virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart and mind. 
And as we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions. Seeing into our own mind affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The possibility uh, of engaging the refuges and or the precepts as part of one's daily practice. That's a possibility. So maybe beginning your day uh, chanting them to yourself. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of, of one's thoughts and words and actions. For me, as probably also for uh, some of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of the retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my life, my own life. To live my daily life in retreat and outside of a retreat setting, in a way that serves and supports the process of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. And sometimes this happens through the conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. And as practice deepens, there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling at all of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions of our life that don't serve this awakening process that we're learning about more and more and that you've committed yourselves to. And it's very often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So a very mundane aspect, or a very mundane example uh, from my life. (laughs) There was a a time uh, when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn the radio on, my car radio. And at some point I began to really notice that it was quite a distraction And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. 
So I'd begin driving somewhere, and this is true, that my hand would kind of automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. Because the force of habit for us is very, very, very strong. So mindfully I'd bring my hand back down into my lap or onto the steering wheel. And at some point I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. That was very helpful. Because then the choice was available to or not to. It still happens sometimes. The week before the retreat I was driving in my car and I saw the thought to turn on the radio. But I didn't take it up. So looking at another change. In this simple and quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days or some big events for you. An especially big day, an especially big event for some of you might have been something as mundane as laundry day. For me, uh, there were times in the early years of my uh, practice in long, intensive retreats when laundry day was such a huge addition to my day that I would find myself planning, uh, planning for it or just thinking a whole lot about it uh, before I went to sleep the night before laundry day was to come. And then when I would wake up in the morning, it would be the, absolutely the first thing that would come into my mind. And I suspect that some of you may have had some, some sort of similar experiences. And how about the big event of the midday meal? Now there's a really big event for most of us. <laughs> what will we have for lunch today? Or even it's today and you're standing in the line or coming towards the dining room and wonder what we'll have for lunch tomorrow. <laughs> or you've just finished today's meal and saying, hmm, wonder what we'll have tomorrow. Or the big event of a one-on-one practice interview. So a few um, events, big days here. There's a, a poem uh, by a Japanese uh, Buddhist poet, Nanao Sakaki. He was a wandering Japanese Buddhist, Buddhist poet who died some years ago. And he has a poem called A Big Day. Getting water at the spring. Carrying firewood. Chattering with a neighbor. The sun goes down. A big day. Many years ago, Nanao um, used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation, which is about 30 miles north of here. And he'd show up at Lama with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag, and he'd stay up at the foundation for a few days, 
and they were always very, very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains just with his knapsack and his sleeping bag, nothing more than what he'd arrived with. And sometimes he'd be gone for a couple of weeks, and then he'd be back again at Lama. A dear friend of mine who um, was the coordinator up at the Lama Foundation during those years told me a story um, of one of these times when Nanao had come in uh, for a day or two from the mountains. He'd been out for a while, and he'd come back into the Lama Foundation. And he asked her and another friend if they'd like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. Well, my friend said that she was just thrilled by that uh, invitation. This was something really special. It was something that uh, had never been offered before uh, from Nanao. So on that appointed day, uh, my friend and the other invitee uh, found their way out to Nanao's camping spot by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, (coughs) Nanao was there, but there wasn't any food ready uh, or in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything with them at all, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. Well, my friend thought that maybe they'd made a mistake, that um, this was the wrong day. But Nanao greeted them very warmly and was delighted to see them and uh, said, okay, now let's go out and find dinner. So my friend said that they, they walked and they picked and they dug various wild foods. And then they came back to Nanao's camp and they built a fire and they cooked what needed cooking and she said they had a very delicious dinner. And then she said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong and healthy and happy. Some years ago, once someone in a practice interview uh, talked about the simplicity on retreat as having a good taste. So we taste it, this good taste. And we take this good taste with us. And it wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. And as we all know, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our work life, our social life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. We often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices, of course, in relationship to the work that we do in the way that we spend time with family and friends and partners. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really do truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, almost every aspect of our life. We really have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life.
And of course, there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we certainly must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and it inspires the way that we expend our energy. What we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity and relationships and various responsibilities. From our experience in retreat, we learn, we, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. You've all been working with that in various ways. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourselves, And we begin to feel more balance within our life as a whole. We find that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity really being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. So the possibility of considering our whole life as our practice. How can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really, it's the most essential and important question. And of course, the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we really begin to integrate a clear, focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all dimensions of our being. Making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, and our creative endeavors all part of our practice. And we can find many moments throughout our day 
we, when we can very simply and very clearly bring our attention, for instance, to the sensations of the breath or the movement of the body in almost any circumstance and almost any activity. So from this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting, if you really think about it. Really, all of the conditions and all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. All of them. All of the joys, all of the irritations, all of the annoyances, the delights, all of the frustrations and all of the satisfactions, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes. All that we also experience in retreat and in life outside of retreat. This is all a mirror for our practice. There was a woman um, quite a number of years ago who sat a retreat uh, that I uh, taught in Israel and who had long before I met her, um, lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided uh, by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. And she told me a story that some of you have heard me tell before. She told me a story that's really a wonderful uh, mirror of a particular and rather difficult situation, being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France that she lived in, there was an old man who had was a very difficult, very irascible fellow. She said he was quite messy and quite argumentative. She said he wouldn't cooperate and he wouldn't help with things and he basically didn't get along with others in the community. And she said that uh, no one liked him very much and that he himself really it didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. And he tried for a long time to stay there. But it was very difficult for him, as well as it was for others. So difficult that this man finally left and he went to Paris. He, he couldn't bear it anymore. Well, Gurji followed him to Paris. And he tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, he couldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there. So Gurdjieff tried to talk him into it, tried to talk him into it, and said no. And so finally Gurdjieff offered him a monthly stipend to come back, which this man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. And so he did come back. He returned to the community. And when he arrived at the community, everyone was really shocked. And uh, they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there because they themselves actually had to pay to live in the community. They complained a lot, carried on a lot about it. So Gurdjieff called a meeting and he listened to everyone's complaints. And then he laughed and he said, This man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, 
patience, the heart of unconditional kindness, and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. The conditions in our lives, the people in our lives, they're all part of our practice. They're really yeast for our bread. Yeast for the purification of the heart, the mind. Yeast for our awakening. Yeast for our liberation. And in relationship to the uh, practice of the divine abidings, the Brahma-viharas, which we've talked about, and many of you are practicing metta at least, some, some more than others, but it's pervasive in this retreat to some degree. There's one a teaching among the 84,000 that the Buddha is said to have offered, where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, unconditional loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Each of the sons, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. Well, when I uh, read that teaching, found out about that teaching, I really took to it because I I only have three sons, but uh, they've definitely managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can really be some of our very best teachers. Just simply through them being who they are. What they need from us. And what they give to us. And what they show us. So an example of the showing us part. My uh, two oldest sons... Uh, who are identical twins and will be 50 uh, next month, well, in June. They continue to show me, uh, to teach me a relationship that's really quite rare. They're each other's best friend. And although when they were little boys, little guys, they did fight with each other, as children do, But over all of these years, they've never talked about each other in negative or judgmental ways. They never, really never, put each other down. No matter what one or the other is feeling and no matter what one or the other has done or not done. And no matter what, how the other's life is going. And at the same time, they're not each other's keeper. They've really never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. And I think it's very rare. It's a very rare friendship. And I'm often quite in awe of it. And I learn from it. 
learn a lot from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal some aspect of the truth to us. And words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a clear concentrated attention that's deeply grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And it's true, because it's often asked about, it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this, when we connect into the larger world. And it's true there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect to a larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration and mindfulness and investigation isn't usually totally sustained outside of the retreat setting, the concentration and mindfulness and investigative capacities that developed along with the multi-dimensional facets of understanding of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in this retreat. This is really a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. There's a change, for sure, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness and concentration and investigation and the continuing blossoming of wisdom are always, always available to us. Many years ago at the end of a a couple of months of retreat with Saida Opandita, one of my Burmese teachers, and two other uh, uh, Burmese monks, I had a brief concentration or... a brief, a brief concentrated conversation, me, a brief conversation with one of the monks that was pretty concentrated, I guess. <laughs> I asked him if, uh, if there was any advice that he might give me uh, around taking practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate 
to stay alive and be healthy. That was all he said. That was pretty good advice. I've never forgotten it. (laughs) And there are some particular ways that I and others have found uh, that can be helpful in bringing uh, a simple and yet direct and immediate concentrated mindful attention into our lives. One teacher uh, suggests that at the end of each hour of the day, just take one or two minutes to just stop, be still, and simply connect with the breath at the Anapanasbata in the belly. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very directly focused, mindful time. With each of these minutes, in fact, having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our practice into our daily lives in a very simple way is to remember uh, at moments during the day to touch into physical sensation through contact. Just the simple contact of the feet on the ground to really connect to it. The bottom touching the chair. Hands touching each other. There's many other possibilities. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and they're strengthened every single time we do this. I think the only uh, thing that's hard about doing these very, very brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. That's the hardest part, is to remember to do them. And I know some people who put little notes to themselves around their home or in their workplace or their study to remind them to check in. So maybe a note on the bathroom mirror. Breathe or breath. Maybe a little stand-up note on your desk at home or at work. Still breathing. Or metta now. Or here now. And you can come up with your own, what, what, what you need, what works for you. There was a, a fellow on the staff at the Insight Meditation Society a number of years ago <coughs> who worked in the front office who had a small, somebody already knows this story, he's laughing before I even say it, <laughs> who had a small stand-up note on his desk that said buttocks. <laughs> and what was that for? It reminded him to bring his attention to the touch points of his buttocks on the chair every now and then. And it also brought a lot of laughs for everyone who came into the office until he didn't notice it anymore and people stopped laughing then he had to put up a new note. And this is a more recent one that I uh, came across. Uh, The director of the Forest Refuge, uh, which is the long-term practice center uh, on the IMS campus, he has his uh, computer uh, programmed to sound the ring of a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes to remind him to stop and to check in with his breath for a couple of moments. And I found that out because I was having a meeting with him 
and it rang and he stopped and I stopped (laughs) and we just breathed for a few breaths and then we talked about it afterwards and I thought it was wonderful. Walking meditation can really be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. A really important uh, aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. Most of us, most all of us, walk at least a few miles going from place to place throughout a day, certainly throughout a week. And we can make some of this walking time a time of practice. Bring our mindful awareness to it. When I lived at IMS as the resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space, which were the same room, was up on the second floor of the main building there. And because I did quite a number of practice uh, interviews with staff, and I had uh, lots of other meetings as well, I really didn't have time during the day uh, to do walking meditation. So at one point I decided that every time I would go up and down the stairs, which I did uh, a few times, a number of times all, every day, that that would be my walking practice. And so most days I did this. And at one point uh, a staff member c- came in for his practice interview and he was obviously quite agitated and with uh, some difficulty he told me that he was very upset because uh, he said I was ignoring him. He said that he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs I wouldn't even look at him. And he was wondering if I was angry with him. So I told him that when I was going up and down the stairs I was, it was my walking meditation time and that I, I certainly hadn't abandoned him and that I definitely wasn't angry at him. It's just that I was uh, practicing as deeply as I could just going up and down the stairs. Well, of course, immediately his, his mind, his attitude changed and he was very happy for me and he said, what a great idea. <laughs> so people may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And of course it's really helpful to connect uh, to others, uh, with others who practice. And I know some of you do have those connections. We certainly can see and feel the benefit of this, as some of you have mentioned, in a retreat setting. And if you're not connected, at least sometimes with a group, even just a group of two or three, or one, once in a while, check and see if there might be a sitting group in your area. And if there isn't, start one. Which might mean just asking one or two other people you know who meditate or who might learn, like to learn to meditate to join you once a week or every other week. And you can sit together and then maybe read something out loud about the teachings and the practice. Maybe listen to a Dhamma talk on a CD or online. And then maybe have some discussion after, the, after you've listened 
or maybe also discuss some things about what your sitting experience is, your practice. And it also can be helpful at times to pick a theme for a week or a theme for a couple of weeks and take turns choosing what's being read or what's being listened to. The Buddha, in a uh, a conversation with Ananda, his disciple Ananda, spoke about the, and his cousin, spoke about the tremendous importance of the connection with spiritual friends. And the Venerable Ananda, speaking with the Buddha, said, Half of this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha's response was, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life. This friendship, companionship, and association with the good. So use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is really one of the great arts in life. I think perhaps the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go out into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, and joy increase. It's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And another poem from Nanao Sakaki. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. So here we are, a bunch of happy, lucky idiots. I'd like to uh, close the talk this evening um, with one last poem by Nanao, kind of a tribute to him, or a tribute from him, actually, uh, to our practice. And he called this poem a love letter. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest ten kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. 
Mountainous country Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle ten thousand kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer, or winter drifting ices in the sea of Ox. Within a circle ten thousand kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle one hundred thousand kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle ten billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system, mandala. Within a circle ten thousand light years large, the galaxy full blooming in spring. Within a circle one billion light years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry blossoms. Now within a circle ten billion light years large, all thoughts of time, space, are burnt away. There again you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. And I'd like to close the talk with a, one more poem by a Native American woman, poet, named Joy Harjo. And she calls this poem Eagle, Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed, because we're born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And let's sit silently for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.